Welcome to Public Domain Playhouse. This is Podcast 2 of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Originally published January 5th, 1886. This is a gothic novella, piece of fiction, a Scottish author. It's also known as The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, as well as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or simply Jekyll and Hyde. It's a strong part of our lexicon and still remains a favorable read. I believe more than 85% consider it positively in today's polls. And it was quite popular at the time. He was working from a stupor. And who knows what put him in that stupor. It could have been an essence of wormwood or some other kind of DMT product. Regardless, Stevenson came up with this dream vision of a horrific alter ego to a completely socially acceptable person. In Stevenson's book, there's a socially acceptable version who ends up being a liar and a socially unacceptable version, which basically ends up being the truth. Interesting trope. You don't see that discussed too much when talked about Jekyll and Hyde. But that is what it boils down to. Jekyll is the true fake. Yes, he's a doctor and a well-respected man about town, but he's obviously compelled to create some concoction that creates a monster, which he then can't resist. It's his nature to want to seek out the uglier part of life, the part that he doesn't actually have on a day-to-day basis, being a gentleman in England. So it's an interesting psychological evaluation. And I would argue that Stevenson is actually saying that our true nature is really quite insidious. It's actually a duality in nature. We have good and bad in all of us. All of us have this quality. And I believe that is ultimately what Stevenson is trying to say. It seems pretty apparent that they were repressing the true nature of their dark sides, which existed. There is good and bad in all men. So thank you for joining me. The first four chapters were quite a thrill ride. We had one talking about the door where the only known person to ever use it was an insidious man named Mr. Hyde. We have the search for Mr. Hyde where the lawyer goes and kind of stalks him hanging out at his door and where he finally encounters him, but uh, Hyde treats him pretty rudely. Then the chapter Dr. Jekyll was quite at ease He was pressed on his crazy will, which we haven't been made privy to the full contents of yet, but you can imagine what it's going to be. Jekyll is willing everything to hide. So that was that chapter, the Carew murder case. It's starting to get good. Hyde has actually supposedly killed somebody with a stick. And Carew is actually a pretty important person, so this actually gets a lot of attention. So, thank you for joining me for Podcast 2. In this particular case, I'm going to try and keep each podcast to about an hour. That's kind of what I appreciate having. Nice round number. 
So after the Carew murder case, we have the incident of the letter, the remarkable incident of Dr. Lanyon, the incident at the window, and the last night. Maybe I'll save that one for podcast three. Maybe this should be the incidents podcast. Chapter five, six, and seven. Maybe I'll do that. And we'll leave the last night, Dr. Delanian's narrative and Henry Jekyll's full statement of the case. <gasps> Henry Jekyll's full statement of the case. Why don't they move that to the next chapter? I don't want to wait till the end of the book. It's far too exciting. I wonder what Stevenson has in store for us tonight. Thank you for joining me. I love uh, reading to you. My Henry Jekyll is quite a gay character. He's actually very, very light at heart. Not the kind of man at all you'd expect to mix up a concoction to become a complete dick. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. <clears throat> Let's get started, shall we? <laughs> Good to go now. Henry Jekyll, you see. <laughs> that woke my dog up. So, here we go, chapter five. The incident of the letter. It was late in the afternoon when Mr. Utterson found his way to Dr. Jekyll's door, where he was at once admitted by Poole, and carried down by the kitchen offices and across a yard, which had once been a garden, to the building, which was indifferently known as the laboratory, or the dissecting rooms. The doctor had bought the house from the heirs of a celebrated surgeon, and his own tastes, being rather chemical than anatomical, had changed the destination of the block at the bottom of the garden. It was the first time that the lawyer had been received in that part of the friend's quarters, and he eyed the dingy, windowless structure with curiosity and gazed round with a distasteful sense of strangeness as he crossed the theater, once crowded with eager students and now lying gaunt and silent, the tables laden with chemical apparatus, the floor strewn with crates and littered with packing straw, and the light falling dimly through the foggy cupola. At the farther end of a flight of stairs mounted to a door covered with red baize, and through this Mr. Utterson was at last received into the doctor's cabinet. It was a large room, fitted round with glass presses, furnished, among other things, with a cheval glass and a business table, and looking out upon the court by three dusty windows barred with iron. The fire burned in the grate, a lamp was set lighted on the chimney shelf, for even in the houses the fog began to lie thickly, and there, close upon the warmth, sat Dr. Jekyll, looking deadly sick. He did not rise to meet his visitor, but held out a cold hand and bade him welcome in a changed voice. And now, said Mr. Utterson as soon as Poole had left the room, you have heard the news. 
The doctor shuddered. They were crying it in the square, he said. I heard them in my dining room. One word, said the lawyer. Carew was my client, but so are you. And I want to know what I am doing. You have not been mad enough to hide this fellow? Utterson, I swear to God, cried the doctor. I swear to God, I will never set eyes on him again. I bind my honor to you, and I am done with him in this world. It is all at an end, and indeed he does not want my help. You do not know him as I do. He is safe. He is quite safe. Mark my words. He will never more be heard of. The lawyer listened gloomily. He did not like his friend's feverish manner. You seem pretty sure of him, he said he. And for your sake, I hope you may be right. If it came to trial, your name might appear. I'm quite sure of him, replied Jekyll. I have grounds for certainty that I cannot share with anyone. But there is one thing on which you may advise me. I have... I have received a letter, and I am at a loss whether I should show it to the police. I should like to leave it in your hands, Utterson. If you would judge wisely, I am sure. I have so great a trust in you. You fear, I suppose that it might lead to his detection, asked the lawyer. No, said the other. I cannot say that I care what becomes of Mr. Hyde. I am quite done with him. I was thinking of my own character, which this hateful business has rather exposed. Utterson ruminated a while. He was surprised at his friend's selfishness, and yet relieved by it. Well, said he at last, let me see the letter. The letter was written in an odd, upright hand, and signed Edward Hyde. And it signified, briefly enough, that the writer's benefactor, Dr. Jekyll, whom he had long so unworthily repaid a thousand generosities, need labor under no alarm for his safety, as he had means of escape on which he placed a sure dependence. The lawyer liked this letter well enough. It put a better color on the intimacy that he had looked for, and he blamed himself for some of his past suspicions. Have you the envelope? he asked. I burned it, replied Jekyll, before I thought what I was about. But it bore no postmark. The note was handed in. Shall I keep this and sleep upon it? asked Utterson. I wish you to judge for me entirely, was the reply. I have lost confidence in myself. Well, I shall consider, returned the lawyer. And now, one word more. It was Hyde who dictated the terms in your will about that disappearance? The doctor seemed seized with a qualm of faintness. He shut his mouth tight and nodded. I knew it, said Utterson. He meant to murder you. You have had a fine escape. I have had what is far more to the purpose, returned the doctor solemnly. I have had a lesson. Oh, God, Utterson, what a lesson I have had. And he covered his face for a moment with his hands. On his way out, the lawyer stopped and had a word or two with Poole. By the by, said he, there was a letter handed in today. What was the messenger like? 
but Poole was positive nothing had come except by post. And only circulars by that, he added. This news sent off the visitor with his fears renewed. Plainly, the letter had come by the laboratory door. Possibly, indeed, it had been written in the cabinet. And if that were so, it must be differently judged and handled with the more caution. The newsboys, as he went, were crying themselves hoarse along the footway. Special edition! Shocking murder of an MP! That was the funeral oration of one friend and client, and he could not help a certain apprehension lest the good name of another should be sucked down in the eddy of the scandal. It was at least a ticklish decision he had to make, and self-reliant as he was by habit, he began to cherish a longing for advice. It was not to be had directly, but perhaps, he thought, it might be fished for. Presently after, he sat on the side of his own hearth, with Mr. Guest, his head clerk, upon the other, and midway between, at a nicely calculated distance from the fire, a bottle of a particular old wine that had long dwelt unsunned in the foundations of his house. The fog still slept on the wing above the drowned city, where the lamps glimmered like carbuncles and through the muffle and smother of these falling clouds, the procession of the town's life was still rolling in through the great arteries with a sound as of a mighty wind. But the room was gay with firelight. In the bottle, the acids were long ago resolved. The imperial dye had softened with time. As the color grows richer in stained windows, and the glow of hot autumn afternoons on hillside vineyards was ready to be set free and to disperse the fogs of London. Insensibly, the lawyer melted. There was no man from whom he kept fewer secrets than Mr. Guest, and he was not always sure that he kept as many as he meant. Guest had often been on business to the doctors. He knew Poole. He could scarcely have failed to hear of Mr. Hyde's familiarity about the house. He might draw conclusions. Was it not as well, then, that he should see a letter which put the mystery to rights? And above all, since Guest, being a great student and critic of handwriting, would consider the step natural and obliging? The clerk, besides, was a man of counsel. He would scarce read so strange a document without dropping a remark, and by that remark, Mr. Utterson might shape his future course. This is a sad business about Sir Danvers, he said. Yes, sir, indeed. It has elicited a great deal of public feeling, returned Guest. The man, of course, was mad. I should like to hear your views on that, replied Utterson. I have a document here in this handwriting. It is between ourselves, for I scarce know what to do about it. It is an ugly business at the best, but there it is. Quite in your way, a murderer's autograph. Guest's eyes brightened, and he sat down at once and studied it with passion. No, sir, he said. Not mad, but it is an odd hand and by all accounts a very odd writer, added the lawyer. Just then the servant entered with a note. Is that from Dr. Jekyll, sir? inquired the clerk. 
I thought I knew the writing. Anything private, Mr. Utterson? Only an invitation to dinner. Why? Do you want to see it? One moment. I thank you, sir. And the clerk laid the two sheets of paper alongside and sedulously compared their contents. Thank you, sir, he said at last, returning both. It's a very interesting autograph. There was a pause during which Mr. Utterson struggled with himself. Why did you compare them, guest? he inquired suddenly. Well, sir, returned the clerk, there's a rather singular resemblance. The two hands are in many points identical, only differently sloped. Rather quaint, said Utterson. It is, as you say, rather quaint, returned guest. I wouldn't speak of this note, you know, said the master. No, sir, said the clerk. I understand. But no sooner was Mr. Utterson alone that night than he locked the note into his safe, where it reposed from that time forward. The death of Sir Danvers was, to his way of thinking, more than paid for by the disappearance of Mr. Hyde. Now that that evil influence had been withdrawn, a new life began for Dr. Jekyll. He came out of his seclusion, renewed relations with his friends, became once more their familiar guest and entertainer, and while he had always been known for charities, he was now no less distinguished for religion. He was busy. He was much in the open air. He did good. His face seemed to open and brighten, as if with an inward consciousness of service, and for more than two months, the doctor was at peace. On the 8th of January, Utterson had dined at the doctor's with a small party. Lanyon had been there, and the face of the host had looked from one to the other as in the old days when the trio were inseparable friends. On the 12th, and again on the 14th, the door was shut against the doctor. The doctor was confined to the house, Poole said and saw no one. On the 15th he tried again, and was again refused. And now, having been used for the last two months to see his friend almost daily, he found this return of solitude to weigh upon his spirits. The fifth night he had in guest to dine with him, and the sixth he betook himself to Dr. Lanyon's. There at least he was not denied admittance, but when he came in, he was shocked at the change that had taken place in the doctor's appearance. He had his death warrant written legibly upon his face. The rosy man had grown pale. His flesh had fallen away and was visibly balder and older. And yet it was not so much these tokens of a swift physical decay that arrested the doctor's notice as a look in the eye and quality of manner that seemed to testify to some deep-seated horror of, of the mind. It was unlikely that the doctor should fear death, and yet that was what Utterson was tempted to suspect. Yes, he thought, he is a doctor. He must know his own state, and that his days are counted, and the knowledge is more than he can bear. And yet when Utterson remarked on his ill looks, it was with an air of great firmness that Lanyon declared himself a doomed man. 
I have had a shock, he said, and I shall never recover. It is a question of weeks. Well, life has been pleasant. I liked it, yes, sir. I used to like it. I sometimes think if we knew all, we should be more glad to get away. Jekyll is ill, too, observed Utterson. Have you seen him? But Lanyon's face changed, and he held up a trembling hand. I wish to see or hear no more of Dr. Jekyll, he said in a loud, unsteady voice. I am quite done with that person, and I beg that you will spare me any allusion to one whom I regard as dead. Tut, tut, said Mr. Utterson. And then after a considerable pause, Can't I do anything? he inquired. We are three very old friends, Lanyon. We shall not live to make others. Nothing can be done, returned Lanyon. Ask himself. He will not see me, said the lawyer. I am not surprised at that, was the reply. Some day, Utterson, after I am dead, you may perhaps come to learn the right and wrong of this. I cannot tell you. And in the meantime, if you can sit and talk with me about other things, for God's sake, stay and do so. But if you cannot keep clear of this accursed topic, then in God's name, go, for I cannot bear it. As soon as he got home, Utterson sat down and wrote to Jekyll, complaining of his exclusion from the house, and asking the cause of this unhappy break with Lanyon, and the next day brought him a long answer, often very pathetically worded, and sometimes darkly mysterious in drift. The quarrel with Lanyon was incurable. I do not blame our old friend, Jekyll wrote, but I share his view that we must never meet. I mean from henceforth to lead a life of extreme seclusion. You must not be surprised, nor must you doubt my friendship. If my door is often shut, even to you, you must suffer me to go my own dark way. I have brought on myself a punishment and a danger that I cannot name. If I am the chief of sinners, I am the chief of sufferers also. I could not think that this earth contained a place for suffering and terrors so unmanning. And you could do but one thing, Utterson, to lighten this destiny, and that is to respect my silence. Utterson was amazed. The dark influence of Hades had been withdrawn. The doctor had returned to his old tasks and amity. A week ago, the prospect had smiled with every promise of a cheerful and honored age. And now, in a moment, friendship and peace of mind and the whole tenor of his life were wrecked. So great and unprepared a change pointed to madness. But in view of Lanyon's manner and words, there must lie for it some deeper ground. A week afterward, Dr. Lanyon took to his bed and in something less than a fortnight, he was dead. The night after the funeral, at which he had been sadly affected, Utterson locked the door of his business room, and sitting there by the light of a melancholy candle, drew out and set before him an envelope addressed by the hand and sealed with the seal of his dead friend. Private, for the hands of G.J. Utterson alone, and in case of this predeceased, to be destroyed unread. 
so it was emphatically superscribed, and the lawyer dreaded to behold its contents. I have buried one friend today, he thought. What if this cost me another? And then he condemned the fear as a disloyalty and broke the seal. Within there was another enclosure, likewise sealed, not to be opened till the death or disappearance of Dr. Henry Jekyll. Utterson could not trust his eyes. Yes, it was disappearance, here again, as in the mad will which he had long ago restored to its author. Here again were the idea of a disappearance and the name of Henry Jekyll bracketed. But in the will, that idea had sprung from the sinister suggestion of the man Hyde. It was set there with a purpose all too plain and horrible. Written by the hand of Lanyon, what should it mean? A great curiosity came on the trustee to disregard the prohibition and dive at once to the bottom of these mysteries. But professional honor and faith to his dead friend were stringent obligations, and the packet slept in the inmost corner of his private safe. It is one thing to mortify curiosity, another to conquer it, and it may be doubted if from that day forth Utterson desired the society of his surviving friend with the same eagerness. He thought of him kindly, but his thoughts were disquieted and fearful. He went to call indeed, but he was perhaps relieved to be denied admittance. Perhaps in his heart he desired to speak with Poole upon the doorstep and surrounded by the air and sounds of the open city, rather than to be admitted into that house of voluntary bondage and to sit and speak with its inscrutable recluse. Poole had, indeed, no very pleasant news to communicate. The doctor, it appeared, now more than ever confined himself to the cabinet over the laboratory, where he would sometimes even sleep. He was out of spirits. He had grown very silent. He did not read. It seemed as if he had something on his mind. Utterson became so used to the unvarying character of these reports that he fell off little by little in the frequency of his visits. Incident at the Window It chanced on Sunday when Mr. Utterson was on his usual walk with Mr. Enfield that their way lay once again through the by-street, and that when they came in front of the door, both stopped to gaze at it. Well, said Enfield, that story's at an end at least. We shall never see more of Mr. Hyde. I hope not, said Mr. Utterson. Did I ever tell you that I once saw him and shared your feeling of repulsion? It was impossible to do the one without the other, returned Enfield. And by the way, what an ass you must have thought me. Not to know that this was a back way to Dr. Jekyll's. It was partly your own fault that I found it out, even when I did. So you found it out, did you? said Utterson. But if that be so, we may step into the court and take a look at the windows. To tell you the truth, I am uneasy about poor Dr. Jekyll, and even outside I feel as if the presence of a friend might do him good. The court was very cool and a little damp and full of premature twilight, although the sky high up overhead was still bright with sunset. 
The middle one of the three windows was halfway open, and sitting close beside it, taking the air with an infinite sadness of mien, like some disconsolate prisoner, Utterson saw Dr. Jekyll. What? Jekyll, he cried. I trust you are better. I am very low, Utterson, replied the doctor drearily. Very low. It will not last long, thank God. You stay too much indoors, said the lawyer. You should be out, whipping up the circulation like Mr. Enfield and me. This is my cousin, Mr. Enfield, Dr. Jekyll. Come now, get your hat, and take a quick turn with us. You are very good, sighed the other. I should like to very much, but... No, 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 it is quite impossible. I dare not. But indeed, Addison, I am very glad to see you. This is a really great pleasure, and I would ask you and Mr. Enfield up, but the place is really not fit. Why then, said the lawyer good-naturedly, the best thing we can do is to stay down here and speak with you from where we are. That is just what I was about to venture to propose, returned the doctor with a smile. But the words were hardly uttered before the smile was struck out of his face and succeeded by an expression of such abject terror and despair as froze the very blood of the two gentlemen below. They saw it but for a glimpse, for the window was instantly thrust down, but that glimpse had been sufficient, and they turned and left the court without a word. In silence, too, they traversed the by-street, and it was not until they had come into a neighboring thoroughfare, where even upon a Sunday there were still some stirrings of life, that Mr. Utterson at last turned and looked at his companion. They were both pale, and there was an answering horror in their eyes. God forgive us. God forgive us, said Mr. Utterson. But Mr. Enfield only nodded his head very seriously and walked on once more in silence. The Last Night Mr. Utterson was sitting by his fireside one evening after dinner when he was surprised to receive a visit from Poole. Bless me, Poole, what brings you here? he cried. And then, taking a second look at him, what ails you, he added, is the doctor ill? Mr. Utterson, said the man, there is something wrong. Take a seat, and here is a glass of wine for you, said the lawyer. Now take your time, and tell me plainly what you want. You know the doctor's ways, sir, replied Poole, and how he shuts himself up. Well... He shut up again in the cabinet, and I don't like it, sir. I wish I may die if I like it. Mr. Utterson, sir, I'm afraid. Now, my good man, said the lawyer, be explicit. What are you afraid of? The man's appearance amply bore out his words. His manner was altered for the worse, and for the moment he had first announced his terror, he had not once looked at the lawyer in the face. Even now he sat with the glass of wine untasted on his knee, and his eyes directed to a corner of the floor. I can bear it no more, he repeated. Come, said the lawyer, 
I see you have good reason, Poole. I see there is something seriously amiss. Try to tell me what it is. I think there has been foul play, said Poole hoarsely. Foul play? cried the lawyer, a good deal frightened and rather inclined to be irritated in consequence. What foul play? What does that man mean? I daren't say, sir, was the answer. But will you come along with me and see for yourself? Mr. Utterson's only answer was to rise and get his hat and greatcoat. But he observed with wonder the greatness of the relief that appeared upon the butler's face, and perhaps with no less that the wine was still untasted when he set it down to follow. It was a wild, cold, seasonable night of March, with a pale moon lying on her back as though the wind had tilted her, and a flying rack of the most diaphanous and lawny texture. The wind made talking difficult and flecked the blood into the face. It seemed to have swept the streets unusually bare of passengers, Besides, for Mr. Utterson thought he had never seen that part of London so deserted. He could have wished it otherwise. Never in his life had he been conscious of so sharp a wish to see and touch his fellow creatures. For struggle as he might, there was borne in upon his mind a crushing anticipation of calamity. The square, when they had got there, was all full of wind and dust, and the thin trees in the garden were lashing themselves along the railing. Poole, who had kept all the way a pace or two ahead, now pulled up in the middle of the pavement and, in spite of the biting weather, took off his hat and mopped his brow with a red pocket handkerchief. But for all the hurry of his coming, these were not the dews of exertion that he wiped away, but the moisture of some strangling anguish. For his face was white, and his voice, when he spoke, harsh and broken, well, sir, he said, here we are, and God grant there be nothing wrong. Amen, Poole, said the lawyer. Thereupon the servant knocked in a very guarded manner. The door was open on the chain, and a voice asked from within, Is that you, Poole? It's all right, said Poole. Open the door. The hall, when they entered, it was brightly lighted up. The fire was built high, and about the hearth, the whole of the servants, men and women, stood huddled together like a flock of sheep. At the sight of Mr. Utterson, the household broke into hysterical whimpering, and the cook cried out, Bless God, it's Mr. Utterson, ran forward as if to take him in her arms. What? What? Are you all here? said the lawyer peevishly. Very irregular. Very unseemly. Your master would be far from pleased. They're all afraid, said Poole. Blank silence followed. No one protesting. Only the maid lifted up her voice now and wept loudly. Hold your tongue, Poole said to her, with a ferocity of accent that testified to his own jangled nerves. And indeed, when the girl had so suddenly raised the note of her lamentation, they had all started and turned toward the inner door with faces of dreadful expectation. And now, continued the butler, addressing the knife boy, reach me a candle, and we'll get this through hands at once. And then he begged Mr. Utterson to follow him and led the way to the back garden. Now, sir, 
said he. You come as gently as you can. I want you to hear, and I don't want you to be heard. And see here, sir, if by any chance he was to ask you in, don't go. Mr. Utterson's nerves at this unlooked-for termination gave a jerk that nearly threw him from his balance. But he recollected his courage and followed the butler into the laboratory building and through the surgical theater with its lumber of crates and bottles to the foot of the stair. Here Poole motioned him to stand on one side and listen while he himself setting down the candle and making a great and obvious call on his resolution, mounted the steps and knocked with a somewhat uncertain hand on the red baize of the cabinet door. Mr. Utterson, sir, asking to see you, he called, and even as he did so once more, violently signed to the lawyer to give ear. A voice answered from within. Tell him I cannot see anyone, it said complainingly. Thank you, sir, said Poole, with a note of something like triumph in his voice. And taking up the candle, he led Mr. Utterson back across the yard and into the great kitchen, where the fire was out and the beetles were leaping on the floor. Sir, he said, looking Mr. Utterson in the eyes, was that my master's voice? It seems much changed, replied the lawyer, very pale, but giving look for look. Changed? Well, yes, I think so, said the butler. Have I been twenty years in this man's house to be deceived about his voice? No, sir. Master's made away with. He was made away with eight days ago, when we heard him cry out upon the name of God. And who's in there instead of him? And why it stays there as a thing that cries to heaven, Mr. Utterson? This is a very strange tale, Poole. This is rather a wild tale, my man, said Mr. Utterson, biting his finger. Suppose it were as you suppose, supposing Dr. Jekyll to have been, well, murdered. What would induce the murderer to stay? That won't hold water. It doesn't commend itself to reason. Well, Mr. Utterson, you are a hard man to satisfy, but I'll do it yet, said Poole. All this last week, you must know, him or it, or whatever it is that lives in that cabinet, has been crying night and day for some sort of medicine and cannot get it into his mind. It was sometimes his way, the master's, that is, to write his orders on a sheet of paper and throw it on the stair. We've had nothing else this week back, nothing but papers and a closed door, and the very meals left there to be smuggled in when nobody was looking. Well, sir, every day, I, twice and thrice in the same day, there have been orders and complaints, and I have been sent flying to all the wholesale chemists in town. Every time I brought the stuff back, there would be another paper telling me to return it, because it was not pure, and another order to a different firm. This drug is wanted bitter bad, sir, whatever for. Have you any of these papers? asked Mr. Utterson. Poole felt in his pocket and handed out a crumpled note which the lawyer, bending nearer to the candle, carefully examined. Its contents ran thus. 
Dr. Jekyll presents his compliments to Mrs. Moore. He assures them that their last sample is impure and quite useless for his present purpose. Here in the late 1800, Dr. J purchased a somewhat large quantity from Mrs. M. He now begs them to search with the most sedulous care, and should any of the same quality be left to forward it to him at once. Expense is no consideration. The importance of this to Dr. J can hardly be exaggerated. So far the letter had run composedly enough, but here, with a sudden splutter of the pen, the writer's emotion had broken loose. For God's sake, he had added, find me some of the old. This is a strange note, said Mr. Utterson, and then sharply, how do you come to have it open? The man at Mars was main angry, sir, and he threw it back to me like so much dirt, returned Poole. This is unquestionably the doctor's hand. Do you know? resumed the lawyer. I thought it looked like it, said the servant rather sulkily, and then, with another voice, But what matters hand of right? he said. I've seen him. Seen him? repeated Utterson. Well, that's it, said Poole. It was this way. I came suddenly into the theater from the garden. It seems he had slipped out to look for this drug or whatever it is, for the cabinet door was open, and there he was at the far end of the room, digging among the crates. He looked up when I came in, gave a kind of cry, and whipped upstairs into the cabinet. It was but for one minute that I saw him, but the hair stood upon the head like quills. Sir, if that was my master... Why had he a mask upon his face? If it was my master, why did he cry out like a rat and run from me? I have served him long enough, and then... The man paused and passed his hand over his face. These are all very strange circumstances, said Mr. Utterson. But I think I begin to see daylight. Your master, Poole, is plainly seized with one of those maladies that both torture and deform the sufferer. Hence, for I ought to know, the alteration of his voice. Hence, the mask and the avoidance of his friends. Hence, his eagerness to find this drug, by means of which the poor soul retains some hope of ultimate recovery. God grant that he be not deceived. There is my explanation. It is sad enough, Poole, I and appalling to consider, but it is plain and natural, hangs well together, and delivers us from all exorbitant alarms. Sir, said the butler, turning to a sort of mottled pallor, that thing was not my master, and there's the truth. My master, here he looked round and began to whisper, is a tall, fine build of a man, and this was more of a dwarf. Utterson attempted to protest. Oh, sir! cried Poole. Do you think I do not know my master after twenty years? Do you think I do not know where his head comes to in the cabinet door, where I saw him every morning of my life? No, sir, that thing in the mask was never Dr. Jekyll. God knows what it was, but it was never Dr. Jekyll. And it is the belief of my heart that there was murder done. Poole, replied the lawyer, 
If you say that, it will become my duty to make certain. Much as I desire to spare your master's feeling, much as I am puzzled by this note, which seems to prove him to still be alive, I shall consider it my duty to break in that door. Ah, Mr. Utterson, that's talking, cried the butler. And now comes the second question, resumed Utterson. Who is going to do it? Why, you and me, was the undaunted reply. That's very well said, returned the lawyer. And whatever comes of it, I shall make it my business to see you are no loser. There is an axe in the theater, continued Poole, and you might take the kitchen poker for yourself. The lawyer took that rude but weighty instrument into his hand and balanced it. Do you know, Poole, he said, looking up, that you and I are about to place ourselves in a position of some peril? You may say so, sir, indeed, returned the butler. It is well, then, that we should be frank, said the other. We both think more than we have said. Let us make a clean breast. This masked figure that you saw, did you recognize it? Well, sir, it went so quick, and the creature was so doubled up that I could hardly swear to that, was the answer. But if you mean, was it Mr. Hyde? Why, yes, I think it was. You see, it was much of the same bigness, and it had the same quick, light way with it. And then, who else could have got in by the laboratory door? You have not forgot, sir, that at the time of the murder... He had still the key with him. But that's not all. I don't know, Mr. Utterson, if you ever met this Mr. Hyde. Yes, said the lawyer. I once spoke with him. Then you must know as well as the rest of us that there is something queer about that gentleman, something that gave a man a turn. I don't know rightly how to say it, sir, beyond this, that you felt in your marrow kind of cold and thin. I own I felt something of what you describe, said Mr. Utterson. Quite so, sir, returned Poole. Well, then, that masked thing like a monkey jumped from among the chemicals and whipped into the cabinet. It went down my spine like ice. Oh, I know it's not evidence, Mr. Utterson. I'm book-learned enough for that. But a man has his feelings, and I give you my Bible word it was Mr. Hyde. I... Aye, said the lawyer, my fears inclined to the same point. Evil, I fear, founded. Evil was sure to come of that connection. I truly, I believe you. I believe poor Harry is killed. And I believe his murderer, for what purpose God alone can tell, is still lurking in his victim's room. Well, let our name be vengeance. Call Bradshaw. The footman came at the summons very white and nervous. Pull yourself together, Bradshaw, said the lawyer. The suspense I know is telling upon all of you, but it is now our intention to make an end of it. Poole here and I are going to force our way into the cabinet. If all is well, my shoulders are broad enough to bear the blame. Meanwhile, lest anything should really be amiss, or any malefactor seek to escape by the back, you and the boy must go around the corner with a pair of good sticks and take your post at the laboratory door. We give you ten minutes to get to your stations. As Bradshaw left, the lawyer looked at his watch, and now, Poole, let us get ours, he said, 
and taking the poker under his arm, led the way into the yard. The scud had banked over the moon, and it was now quite dark. The wind, which only broke in puffs and droughts into the deep well of building, tossed the light of the candle to and fro about their steps, until they came into the shelter of the theater, where they sat down silently to wait. London hummed solemnly all around, but nearer at hand the stillness was only broken by the sounds of a footfall moving to and fro along the cabinet floor. We'll be walk all day, sir, whispered Poole. I and the better part of the night. Only when a new sample comes from the chemist, there's a bit of a break. Ah, it's still all ill conscience that's such an enemy to rest. Ah, sir, there's blood foully shed in every step of it. But hark again, a little closer. Put your heart in your ears, Mr. Utterson, and tell me, is that the doctor's foot? The steps fell lightly and oddly with a certain swing. For all, they went so slowly. It was different indeed from the heavy, creaking tread of Henry Jekyll. Utterson sighed. Is there never anything else? he asked. Poole nodded. Once, he said. Once I heard it weeping. Weeping? How that, said the lawyer, conscious of a sudden thrill of horror. Weeping, like a woman or a lost soul, said the butler. I came away with that upon my heart, that I could have wept too. But now the ten minutes drew to an end. Poole disinterred the axe from under a stack of packing straw. The candle was set upon the nearest table to light them to the attack and they drew near with bated breath to where that patient foot was still going up and down, up and down, in the quiet of the night. Jekyll, cried Utterson with a loud voice, I demand to see you. He paused a moment, but there came no reply. I give you fair warning, our suspicions are aroused, and I must and shall see you, he resumed. If not by fair means, then by foul. If not by your consent, then by brute force. Addison, said the voice, for God's sake, have mercy. Ah, that's not Jekyll's voice. It's Hyde's, cried Utterson. Down with the door, Poole. Poole swung the axe over his shoulder. The blow shook the building, and the red bay's door leapt against the lock and hinges. A dismal screech, as of mere animal terror, rang from the cabinet. Up went the axe again, and again the panels crashed and the frame bounded. Four times the blow fell, but the wood was tough, and the fittings were of excellent workmanship, and it was not until the fifth that the lock burst in sunder, and the wreck of the door fell inward on the carpet. The besiegers, appalled by their own riot in the stillness that had succeeded, stood back a little and peered in. There lay the cabinet before their eyes in the quiet lamplight, a good fire glowing and chattering on the hearth, the kettle singing its thin strain, a drawer or two open, papers neatly set forth on the business table, and nearer the fire the things laid out for tea. The quietest room, you would have said, and but for the glazed presses full of chemicals, 
the most commonplace that night in London. Right in the midst, there lay the body of a man sorely contorted and still twitching. They drew near on tiptoe, turned it on its back, and beheld the face of Edward Hyde. He was dressed in clothes far too large for him, clothes of the doctor's bigness. The cords of his face still moved with a semblance of life, but life was quite gone and by the crushed vial in his hand and the strong smell of kernels that hung upon the air, Utterson knew he was looking on the body of the self-destroyer. We have come too late, he said sternly. Whether to save or punish, Hyde is gone to his account, and it only remains for us to find the body of your master. Poole stamped on the flags of the corridor. He must be buried here, he said, hearkening to the sound. Or he may have fled, said Utterson, and as he turned to examine the door in the by-street, it was locked, and lying nearby on the flags they found the key, already stained with rust. This does not look like use, observed the lawyer. Use, echoed Poole. Do you not see, sir? It is broken, much as if a man had stamped on it. Aye, continued Utterson, and the fractures too are rusty. The two men looked at each other with a scare. This is beyond me, Poole, said the lawyer. Let us go back to the cabinet. They mounted the stair in silence, and still with an occasional awestruck glance at the dead body, proceeded more thoroughly to examine the contents of the cabinet. At one table there were traces of chemical work, various measured heaps of some white salt being laid on glass saucers as though for an experiment in which the unhappy man had been prevented. This is the same drug I was always bringing him, said Poole, and even as he spoke, the kettle with a startling noise boiled over. This brought them to the fireside, where the easy chair had drawn cozily up, and the tea things stood ready to the sitter's elbow, and the very sugar in the cup. There were several books upon the shelf, one lay beside the tea things open, and Utterson was amazed to find it a copy of a pious work, for which Jekyll had several times expressed a great esteem, annotated in his own hand with startling blasphemies. Next, in the course of their review of the chamber, the searchers came to the cheval glass, into whose depths they looked with an involuntary horror, but it was so turned as to show them nothing but the rosy glow playing on the roof, the fire sparkling in a hundred repetitions along the glazed front of the presses, and their own pale and fearful countenances stooping to look in. This glass has seen some strange things, sir, whispered Poole. And surely no stranger than itself, echoed the lawyer in the same tones. For what did Jekyll? He caught himself up at the word. With what start? and then conquering the weakness. What could Jekyll want with it? He said. You may say that, said Poole. Next, they turned to the business table. On the desk among the neat array of papers, a large envelope was uppermost, and bore in the doctor's hand the name of Mr. Utterson. The lawyer unsealed it, and several enclosures fell to the floor. The first was a will, drawn in the same eccentric terms as the one which he had returned six months before. 
to serve as a testament in case of death and as a deed of gift in case of disappearance. But in place of the name of Edward Hyde, the lawyer, with the indescribable amazement, read the name of Gabriel John Utterson. He looked at Poole, and then back at the paper, and at last, all at the dead malefactor stretched upon the carpet. My head goes round, he said. He has been all these days in possession. He had no cause to like me. He must have raged to see himself displaced, and he has not destroyed this document. He caught up the next paper. It was a brief note in the doctor's hand and dated at the top. Oh, Poole, the lawyer cried. He was alive and here this day. He cannot have been disposed of in so short a space. He must still be alive. He must have fled. And then, why fled? And how? And in what case? Can we venture to declare this suicide? Oh, we must be careful. I foresee that we may yet involve your master in some dire catastrophe. Why don't you read it, sir? asked Poole. Because I fear, replied the lawyer solemnly. God grant I have no cause for it. And with that, he brought the paper to his eyes and read as follows. My dear Utterson, when this shall fall into your hands, I shall have disappeared. Under what circumstances, I have not the penetration to foresee. But my instinct and all the circumstances of my nameless situation tell me that the end is sure and must be early. Go then, and first read the narrative which Lanyon warned me he was to place in your hands. And if you care to hear more, turn to the confessions of your unworthy and unhappy friend, Henry Jekyll. There was a third enclosure? Asked Utterson. Here, sir, said Poole, and gave into his hands a considerable packet sealed in several places. The lawyer put it in his pocket. I would say nothing of this paper. If your master has fled, or is dead, we may at least save his credit. It is now ten. I must go home and read these documents in quiet, but I shall be back before midnight when we shall send for the police. They went out, locking the door of the theater behind them, and Utterson once more leaving the servants gathered about the fire in the hall, trudged back to his office to read the two narratives in which his mystery was now to be explained. And that concludes podcast two of Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This is Bart Benny wishing you a good evening. Again, thank you for joining me. This was an exciting middle section of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde where we really start to get into the meat of the story as far as Stevenson can tell it. Um... He has a tendency of uh, telling things through intermediaries, so that's why we had incidents in this podcast. Um, there was the incident of the letter. There was the remarkable incident of Dr. Lanyon. And then uh, they, the way that he phrases it, and then there's the incident at the window. So incidents were obviously theatrical things in Stevenson's times and these are the things that actually sold 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as a piece of theater. He's, the play was actually produced shortly after the book was released as a Penny Dreadful. Um, and that's kind of an important thing for people to keep in mind. But taking a look back again, <clears throat> is it any wonder that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is still part of our terminology today? If you say, oh, they're a real Jekyll and Hyde, you know exactly what somebody means. They have a good side and a bad side, kind of a good cop, bad cop thing, or a yin and yang thing that are fighting constantly with each other. So Stevenson kind of touched upon um, a storyline that I guess we've loved forever, good versus bad, good versus evil. From the Lord of the Rings to the Hunger Games, it makes it pretty easy to know who to follow. But the interesting thing that I think Stevens is bringing about I think is that he's showing that the good Dr. Jekyll secretly longs to be the bad Mr. Hyde and actually it's not so much of a secret. He definitely longed to become Mr. Hyde. He kept making that potion, didn't he? So it's an interesting storyline and one that I actually kind of wanted to flesh out a little bit and read myself because I, I, I think it's... Uh, like I said, kind of a common theme that has been told in stories probably since we were living in caves. But this kind of culminates with the incident at the window, which is where they see Jekyll sitting up in a window. They encourage him to come out. He says he can't do it. He's feeling very low. His home's a wreck. And then all of a sudden they see something that scares them so much it shuts them the hell up. These are talkative English guys. So... That must have been something quite big. Of course, back in the time frame that Stevenson's act, Stevenson actually wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in the late 1800s, they didn't have the same kind of storytelling style that we do today. Rather than seeing the evil Mr. Hyde taking poison to kill himself, the excitement comes from the lawyer and the butler actually stepping up with an axe in a crowbar or a fireplace poker and busting down the door. So that was the exciting scene. And then they come trudging through and sure enough, Hyde is there, but he's just twitching. So he's already dead. Today's storytelling style, we would probably show him drinking a vial to kill himself rather than be caught. But I think Stevenson is making an interesting point that we can't have good without the bad. And it's interesting that he uses the stiff upper lips of English gentlemen to tell this story. I mean, I've always thought of the English culture as relatively repressed. Um, not relatively, pretty hardcore repressed. And a lot of English people will talk about the absolute horror of an embarrassing situation. Oh no! So, it's an interesting backdrop to be able to discuss good and evil, right and wrong, although questionable right and wrong. Obviously, the character of Dr. Jekyll secretly longs to be bad, and he finds that to be more honest. And as I said earlier, it really turns out to be Dr. Jekyll who's the fake, and Mr. Hyde is actually the honest character in this book. 
Thank you again for joining me. I have a few extra minutes. This podcast uh, didn't go as long as the first podcast. I try and keep them to about an hour or a little over in an hour five. So thanks again for sticking with me and listening to this stuff. I love reading stories. I'm doing this basically for my kids, but if anybody else finds any enjoyment in this, if anybody else finds my voice appealing, I appreciate the fact that I can entertain you for a little bit. That's a cool thing. Join me next time for podcast three of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when we get down to the bottom of it. Um, We actually find out about Dr. Lanyon's narrative and find out probably what killed him so young. And then after Dr. Lanyon's... (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. Then after Dr. Lanyon's narrative, of course, we have the big story conclusion, Henry Jekyll's full statement of the case. So we'll get basically a statement from Dr. Jekyll as well and find out what exactly was going through his mind other than some mysterious salt. I do think it's also kind of interesting that drugs uh, played a part in this. You know, there's been um, temperament-changing elements in storytelling dating back to Greek tragedies. Um, You know, right down to like sprites or something like that or magic. Basically, in the tur- at the late 1800s, science was really kind of the new magic at the time, and chemistry and pharmacopoeia was a huge thing. It was everywhere. Um, a lot of the substances that are vilified today, methamphetamine, cannabis, um, heroin, cocaine, all these things were actually sold over the counter in this country. So it was allowed at one point until... Congress basically acted to stop snake oil salesmen from being able to kill people. That's ultimately the justification behind it, but as we all know, pharmacopoeia has actually uh, stepped in and ruled that situation even more. So just because they're not selling one thing that was detrimental to people's health or beneficial to people's health that they're no longer selling, that doesn't mean that they can't step up and do the same thing with another compound. That's the beautiful thing and the magical thing about chemistry is that there's a lot of different ways to approach a similar problem. So it's interesting that that was, and timely, that that is the methodology that Stevens used to alter an extremely good and pious man into a wicked, evil, short despot. I think it's interesting that he made him short and that they made such a big thing about him wearing Jekyll's clothes, which were way too big on him. That he was short and gruntish and people just had this air of deformity about him, even though there was nothing specific that they could put their mind, their hand on, their mind on. Jekyll was deformed, but that's because he was pure, pure evil. (laughs) who enjoys clubbing people to death when they stop and ask them for directions late at night. Um, At any rate, thanks for joining me. Come back for the third time, the last two chapters, and we'll figure out how Stevenson's wrapped this up. And I know I haven't done a plug for Call of the Wild in probably over five minutes, but I've been looking at this book. I, I pull books off the shelf kind of two at a time so I can start scoping this out. This is really a huge process, making a podcast. And in case you're wondering why it takes me so long to put one out, it's because I'm a single guy. I'm public domain playhouse. But right now I'm a single guy. That doesn't mean I don't have things in the works where I'm going to work with other actors and actresses, because I think that would be fun too. 
But I just enjoy reading. I enjoy reading to my kids. I always have since the time that they were little, as long as they will let me. And I enjoy reading to adults too. There's plenty of people that enjoy having things read to them. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it kind of marries my skills. I studied theater a little bit in high school and college, but not enough to actually always to want to be the center of attention. My background is actually as a writer, so I enjoy writing scripts and following through, but I do miss performance to some extent. Ah, my computer tells me I just got mail. <laughs> um, so come back and join me over and over and over. Come back for the third podcast of Jekyll and Hyde, but then after that, I think I'm going to do Call of the Wild. If you all have any requests, make sure you leave them for me. Always happy to hear from people listening to the stuff. So take care. We'll talk to you later. Have a good night.